Well, um, as you probably know, John, I'm taking it that I'm on. Okay, great. As you probably know, we're working through a series called Defeated, and we're looking each week at a different defeater belief that we hold in our minds, that some of us hold in our minds, that um, cause us to uh, act as a barrier almost, as it were, to what real, robust, full embracing of Jesus looks like. Now, I had to tell you about the slides tonight. The main points are not on there, so you're going to have to listen up tonight, okay? So, um, I will, let, me, let me phrase it like this, though. So, what does tonight's defeater belief look like? Well, some of you might remember the cartoon movie, All Dogs Go to Heaven. And there is a fundamental heart belief that I would suggest that most you and me hold, and that is deep down, we really do believe that, that if you're good, you'll go to heaven. And that if you're a good person, that that's all that's required to get God to look at you. I start with a story. Uh, my wife and I, about two or three weeks ago, wasted our money and rented the Redbox, like straight to Redbox movie, I think, uh, The Three Stooges. Which, if you aren't familiar with the Three Stooges, you know, in the early years and television was just sort of coming on as these three guys, a bunch of jokesters, it's slapstick comedy, uh, and they have made a movie about it, which is probably a bad idea. But anyways, the, the movie opens with these three boys that are sort of tossed at the doorstep of this orphanage. And then they sort of grow up at this orphanage, and uh, word is coming, uh, and they're, they're crazy kids at this orphanage. They, are, they wreak havoc with the nuns, and um, they really are troublemakers. And so the day is coming where they know a family is going to come, the orphanages, and uh, the orphanage gets this idea, what we should do is hide all the other children. That way we sort of force the hand of these parents that they will have to pick at least one of these stooges to take them away from the orphanage. So what happens is, as the parents come, the prospective parents come, and the stooges, the three boys are lined up, and they're all sort of squeaky clean and smiling, and they, I can't remember, I think they might do a little you know, song and dance number to sort of get their attention. And what ends up happening is, is that you see the parents sort of go down the row, and they end up picking Mo, the stooge Mo. And I just simply share that story with you because, really, if you watch that film, what you begin to see illustrated in that moment is how good, what must I do, what must I perform, how can I clean myself up enough such that the father and the mother will accept me? How can I get the Stooges' reason, the parents to look my way and take me in? And I actually want to suggest to you that this text is not only addressing that fundamental belief in your heart and in my heart, but it's actually offering up a corrective. In other words, what is this getting at? This text is telling us that each of us believes that we can earn God's approval by being good people. 
But this is going to show us that this text is going to show us that while that might make sense based on human logic, human understanding, it makes absolutely zero sense in God's economy. It's not how He works. God is someone who is, as the Scriptures describe Him, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. What is this text going to tell us? Here's your main point. That because God is actually merciful, that you and me ought to rely on Him. And there's going to be a couple of ways that we ought to do that. In other words, what circumstances in life should we rely on Him in? And they are, here are your three major points. You can write them down. First, we rely on Him despite what we do. We rely on Him despite what we do. Secondly, we rely on Him despite what we don't do. We're going to look at that. And then lastly, we rely on Him despite who we actually are. So let's start looking at that, this idea, the first main point there of relying on Him despite what you do. If you'll look with me at the um, text here, you'll see a couple of different uh, stories almost broken down. You'll see a parable that Jesus talks about from verses 7 to, uh, 7 to 10. And then you'll see in the text as well, from 11 to 19, there is this healing of this leper. And you might look at that and go, these stories, why are they together? Because they seem so incredibly different. You know, it's almost like there's peanut butter and there's jelly, but I'm trying to tell you that both of these you'll see actually go together with some, like, some yummy goodness. That this is going to make sense as we look at it. They really are meant to go together, okay? And in that first little section there, verses 7 through 10, something fantastic and horrible at the same time is going on. Let's take a look at it. So here's how the story goes. Jesus is asking his disciples to consider something. Imagine you, disciple, being somebody that is a master that has a slave or employee in your household. Okay? And then imagine the day coming to an end and you speaking out to that servant. It says here in the text, come at once. Literally in the Greek, it says immediately. It's like with great urgency. It's almost like, hey, get in here. Come eat with me. Jesus is asking the question, how many of y'all would do that? And the question is framed in such a way that Jesus wants you to answer, nobody would do that. Nobody would ask that. Nobody would ask that question. Instead, Jesus says in verse 8, would you not rather say, come, prepare my supper, put your proper attire on, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you can eat and drink. And so, while this might not make a whole lot of sense in our immediate Western culture, this made perfect sense, perfect sense in an ancient Near East culture. He goes on to say, does he thank that servant because he did what he was commanded? Verse 10, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, for we have only done what was our duty. What is Jesus getting at by telling us this parable? Well, he's trying to say that at the end of the day, that this servant ought not to expect anything from his, from his master because he is simply doing what his job is. 
Think about it like this. Imagine you had an on-campus job. You worked at the rec center. Okay, And after a good four-hour shift or whatever, you get done, you get in your car, and you drive over to Chancellor Boschini's house, and you say, Vibo, I'm here. Let's eat. And he looks at you crazy, and he goes, uh, why are you here? What are you doing? And he says, well, I just got through wiping down the machines and stacking the weights, and I figured, hey, in light of that, you owed me dinner. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? Why? Well, you know as as well as I do, Chancellor Boschini would be right to reply, no, that's your job. That's what you're supposed to do. And just because you've done it doesn't mean that I now am obligated to give you a feast in my home. Does this make sense? So what's going on in this text is, is Jesus is saying, so that you also, that when you have done all that you require, You ought not to expect anything from God. And right now, that ought to really trouble you. Because here's why. Most of us, deep down, believe if I just do what God asks me to do, He has to bless me. He has to reward me. I'm going to push pause and we're going to look at some practical things. You say, I don't think I really believe that. I mean, do I? I don't really, I mean, nah, nah, right. I mean, I hear what you're saying, but I don't think that's what, okay, here we go. First of all, if that's the reason, why do you think that, what motivates you to be a good, squeaky, clean person? Are you like me in this regard? Do you think, man, if I just love my wife, if I just do all the right things, then God will be obligated to bless me. Listen, some of y'all are very squeaky clean and moral. You go, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't don't sleep around, I don't cheat on my tests, or whatever. And the reason that you do that is because you are hoping that once you have done those tasks, that you will now be able to look to God and say, you owe me. You would never be so bold in your heart. But here's how you can know that you do that. When tragedy strikes, or when things don't go your way, you are angry. And why are you angry? Because you've spent your whole life living the good life, trying to get God to see you. And when things go wrong, you go, God, you owe me. You owe me. You owe me. And so in the end, the whole reason that you were not drinking, not sleeping around, not cheating on your tests and the whole nine yards had nothing to do with God. Do you know who it had everything to do with? Yourself. Why is that so challenging in light of this text? Here's what it is. If you were a first century Jew the part of your Bible that you don't go to that much called the Old Testament would have spelled out what it looks like to actually live as a faithful follower of God. And what this text is saying is once you have met every single one of those requirements, even if you could do it, God, do you know what God owes you? Nothing. 
zilch. Listen to what my seminary professor, Dr. Brian Chapel, said in his book. Though we want to display the trophies of our good works, obedience, and spiritual, spiritual accomplishments, we must recognize that there is not sufficient goodness in anything we do to require God to move in our behalf. When we display our trophies of good deeds, God does not disregard the good in them, but if we try to force our way into His heart by such deeds, He must respond and listen. Do not forget that what I actually require is that you cause no sin, that you confront others' sin, and that you forgive any sin. And if you had met these standards perfectly, though you have not. And here's where the punch comes. You would have only done your basic duty, and I owe you no special blessing for that. Dang! That's like a hammer. Y'all remember Bowser from Mario Brothers? He's just throwing them. That's what's going on here in this text. Jesus is saying, that when you obey every single one of God's rules, even if you could do it, God owes you nothing. So now what? Do you see what the problem with moralism is? This idea that all good people go to heaven? Y'all, the reason this kills is because you can't be good enough. You can't do it. Nobody can live up to that standard. And so you are dead in the water. You're, as they say, screwed before God. So trying to be a good, nice, and moral person really gets you absolutely nothing. How's that? So we're going to ask the question, wait a second, Ryan, are you saying that I should just throw caution to the wind and, you know, that I don't have to worry about obedience or anything? No, I'm not saying that. And we're going to look at that next week. So please come back, okay? There's a part two to all this. But what I'm saying is, is that it counts for nothing, nothing to get God to look at you. Not one darn thing. And that's incredibly troubling. So I ask you, where do you think that you see yourself doing this in your own life? Where are you trying to be a good moral person, obeying the rules, keeping all the uh, I's and J's and umlauts doubted, you know, dotted or whatever, and uh, your T's crossed. And I just ask you, why are you doing that? Would you be so brave to maybe even consider that you're doing it for yourself? Because you want to put God in your debt. And here's the deal. God will be in no man's debt. He will be no man's debtor. He owes you nothing. So now what? That's harsh news if you ask me. But that's not the only news we're going to hear tonight. Because Jesus secondly says that we should rely on God despite what we don't do. There's your second point. And we're going to look at this in the second little passage here. Jesus says, uh, I mean rather the text tells us that Jesus is on a journey. And He's traveling. And as He's traveling to Jerusalem, a Jewish city. He's on the road, and alongside the road are ten lepers. And they're crying out. You see it right there. They say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. 
And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, imagine that you were in a theater. You would need to be able to see the backdrop to kind of understand what was happening in the foreground. So I want to take a moment and kind of paint for you the contextual background of what's going on. Jesus is on the way to the city, the city of Jerusalem, and here are lepers outside of the city calling out to him. And what if you would have understood, if you read your Bible and you read Leviticus 13 and 14, you would know what is going on. So you can write that down if you ever want to go try to read it. Here's what it's saying. If you were a leper, you were deemed unclean in the community. And so you were literally cast outside the city and had to live out there because you were, you were unclean and you could not pollute other people. And in a, way, in a way to not pollute other people, you actually had to yell out all of your life, unclean! So that when whoever came around, they didn't get too close to you to make them ceremonially unclean. And so what's happening here, they're walking by, and from a distance it says, they're crying out, Master Jesus, have mercy on us. And you'll notice he says, go and show yourselves to the priest. Why is this so important? Because y'all, if they are outside the city, there is actually no way they could do all of what this required. Does that make sense? They would not have been around the temple. They would not have been able to live out faithfully what it meant to live out a life before God in the Old Testament. And so they would have just been like, uh, do this, A, nope. Uh, do this, B, nope. Do this, C, and on down the list. And then like double A, and then triple A, and then quadruple. All of the, they could not do them. And do you know what Jesus does? Look with me. Right here where he says in verse 14, and as they went away, they were cleansed. Do you see what's happening? Do you see that Jesus here is actually healing those people that could do absolutely nothing? That they had nothing to give? That what record could they boast in? They had no record. And it's those that Jesus heals. Do you see that? So what am I getting at? This is, incredibly, this is incredible good news. Because here's why. Some of y'all, like me, have tried the spiritual life. You have tried to get God to look at you. You have tried to get God to pay. You've done all of this. You're burnout. And you go, I've just had it. I'm not trying anymore. And what I'm actually saying is, is that you're closer to the kingdom of God than you could ever imagine. Because you're finally getting it. You're finally getting it. An old story in this same book that I told, taught you, got this quote from, from Dr. Chapel. It tells the old adage of this angel letting people into heaven. And it was like, you need to check off a hundred boxes or get a hundred points before we let you into heaven. And the guy says, tell me why I should let you into heaven. And the guy begins to point to his record. And he says, well, I've lived and I've loved my wife faithfully for 50 years. I never cheated on her once. I never in my entire life looked unfaithfully at another woman. And the, and the angel goes, that's great. That's worth two points. Two points. 
Well, uh, I never cheated on any of my taxes in my entire life. I raised my kids up to know God. And, and um, you know what? I was one of the best neighbors that anybody ever saw. And the angel goes, that's great, man. That's one and a half points. And he says the third time, you know what? Here's the thing. I was actually a really, really faithful member in my church. I did Sunday in the morning, Sunday night. I went to all sorts of church camps when I was a kid. I read my Bible all the time. I even evangelized to other people and told people about my faith. And I was a faithful elder or deacon in my church. And the angel goes, that's awesome. That's worth another two points. And the guy in exhaustion goes, are you kidding me? Five and a half points for all this? The only way I'm ever going to get in is by the sheer grace of God. And that guy goes, good, come on in. A little joke, a little corny, but you get it. You get it, right? Because all of you at some point or another know what spiritual fatigue is. You're actually dog-tired from trying to get God to love you. You're trying like crazy to get Him to look at you. You're the little orphan trying to do all the right things. And Jesus is saying here, are you ready? You can't and stop. Stop. Stop it. Why? What do the lepers cry out? Be merciful to me. And do you know, the thing that gets God to look at you is His own mercy. Imagine a king. You're a beggar and you're coming to him and you have a British accent and you say, Sir, give me more porridge. And you go, okay, that that guy needs to get some. He's presenting his need before the king and the king now has to give him his food. Isn't that what this text is about? Isn't Isn't this about that God helps needy people? Ah, ah, ah. That is true. But that's actually not what the text is about. Do you know what moves the king's heart to give? It's because the king is good and generous. You can have a king that when the peasant comes and says, Sir, give me more porridge, looks at him and says, Get out of my sight. I don't care if you're needy or not. I don't care. But this text is showing you that the God of the Bible is infinitely generous with His mercy and with His grace. And that that is your and my only hope to get Him to turn His eyes and to gaze at you. Do you know what that means, spiritually tired person? You can rest. What would it mean for you to actually look at Jesus and say, you alone, you alone are all I need. There's an old hymn that says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Because that's all you got. That's what Jesus is saying in this text. I'm belaboring the point I need to move on. Lastly, Jesus is saying we ought to rely on on God because of who we are. Who we are. What are you talking about? Well, we've already briefly touched on it in the second point, And that is this. I want you to know that it was the beggars and it was the lepers 
who were the social outcasts of the day. They were the folks that people looked on with disdain and scorn. You know what they were, y'all? They were the spiritual failures of that community. They were the people that didn't have it all together, that couldn't get it right, that knew their own brokenness before God. And it was them that Jesus had mercy on. Not all the people in verses 7-10 through who had done all the things that they were supposed to do. Now, does that liberate you? I want to suggest to you that if it doesn't, you may have never heard the Gospel before. Do you know why? Because that means at some level, you were probably still trying to earn God's approval. You were still trying to get God to look at you. But when you know your spiritual bankruptcy, and you look at Jesus and say, I got nothing. I get nowhere. I, got, I have no reason. I, I get nothing if it's not for you. You have known nothing of spiritual bankruptcy. And you're parading your own record and your own performance before God and trying to get Him to look at you and to say, yeah, you're good enough. Come on in. I just want to challenge you. Do you know this sort, ready, of a severe mercy? It's an intense mercy, y'all. It hunts you down. It pins you on the floor because it says... You've got nothing. Nothing. You're a beggar. You're a beggar. And you've got nothing. But what this is saying is that if you know that, you are welcomed into the very heart of God. So I ask you today, who do you think about when you think about who are the folks that God would never, in your mind, and maybe you're one of them, you say, You don't know my record, Ryan. You don't know how many people I've slept around with. You don't know how often I get drunk and intoxicated. You don't know how much I'm obsessed with my body image and I just want guys to like me. You don't know the deep parts of my heart. And I go, you're right. But Jesus does. And He still dies for all of that. He does. And that's good news. Here's what I'm getting at. The best place you can be is a spiritually needy person. And we don't like needy people, do we? Because they require a lot of us. We've all got that needy friend that's going to be costly of our time and resources. And I'm telling you what, do you know what? Do you think your friend is needy? Do you know how much you are needy for, in Jesus' eyes? You're so needy, it cost him his life. I don't know. Pretty big deal. You know what I'm getting at? And he's saying this. This is for you. This is for you, spiritually broken person who cannot get it together. Quit trying to believe that all good people go to heaven. I've heard it said like this, and it's sort of dumb too, but you'll get it. That the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Think about that. The road to hell is paved with fantastic intentions. Because people who look to themselves and don't rely solely on the basis of what Jesus has done for us 
completely miss out on fellowship with Him. Where do I close? I close with this. I just want to say this. How in the world can you and me take any confidence that this would actually be true for us? And it comes to us like this. There was once a man who himself was taken outside the city. There was Jerusalem, and then there was a hill called the Place of the Skull where people were actually killed and crucified. And he was a man that had kept everything that the law required. And instead of giving him blessing and an inheritance, God poured out on him the full measure of his wrath because that man That man was the true unworthy servant. That man was the true unworthy servant. And his name is Jesus. And do you know what Jesus was saying on the cross for you and me? Not, O Lord, have mercy, Father, but forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. I want you to pause for a second. And I just want to say that that right there is for you. It's for you. It's for you to know. It's for you to take. I'm trying to speak softly and tenderly because your heart might be crushed right now. And I'm saying Jesus really is for sinners. And most of y'all think that Jesus is for people who are good. And I'm going to tell you who people that Jesus is not for. He's not for good people. Because in the end, they don't need Him. Does that make sense? The good news of the Gospel is, is that Jesus really has died. And that you don't have to keep trying that you can trust in the finished work of Jesus to get the Father's approval and to get His gaze to look at you. It's the best news you're going to hear tonight. Let's pray.